Father, I ask that you will enable me to speak your word truthfully, faithfully, and clearly. Because this is not an easy passage. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will empower me to do this task and that the Spirit of God will also work in all who are hearing this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Allow me to begin with a story that I heard. D.A. Carson um, was talking, was recounting a story about how he and another um, uh, pastor were talking about this man who was also a fellow pastor but fell into sexual immorality. And they were recounting how could this have happened. And they were tracing the life of this man, this young man, whom they have known very well. How he grew up in a Christian, godly Christian family, how he professed faith, how he went to good Christian schools, how he indicated he desired to serve God. He went on mission trips, proved himself, went to seminary, studied, did well, and answered the call to be a pastor in the church. And yet, despite such a, call it a clean, maybe impeccable history, he fell into sexual immorality. And they wondered why. What went wrong? And the conclusion of the matter, as he was recounting, is this. They realized that this young man had never suffered for Jesus. The choices that he took did not cost him. And that was where he began his sermon about suffering. And this is where I also will begin. The main point of today's passage is this. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must be prepared to suffer. You must be prepared to suffer. Conversely, if you are not suffering for Jesus, you are not a disciple of Jesus. And I know that maybe some of us might feel uncomfortable and even difficult to accept that. But the truth lays before us in this text that all who do not suffer for Christ do not belong to Him. And so the text we have are going to teach us at least three critical truths about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, the chapter is significant because previously we are only given incidents, uh, descriptions of what happened with Jesus as how he interacted with individuals, the crowd, and the religious leaders. But finally, we are given a chapter here where we are given the teachings of Jesus for a whole chapter. And if you were to look at the passage with me in Luke chapter 6, verse 17, you would notice that there are three groups of people that he is going to address from verse 20 onwards. In verse 17, it writes, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples. Did you catch the word 
a great crowd of his disciples. Now, normally you and I would think that the disciples would be a very small minority, but Luke records that there were actually a great crowd of disciples who were following Jesus. And of this great crowd, a subset of the 12 were chosen in the previous part. And then we have another group. And a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So we know there are at least three groups categorized for us. The twelve who were chosen by Jesus, a great crowd of disciples, and a great multitude. Now, with such a vast number of people, the text begs the question. And the question is, and will be answered, is, who are the true followers of Jesus? Who are the true followers of Jesus? Now, it's important to remember that many came to Him wanting to be relieved of their suffering, to be healed of their diseases, and to be removed from the trouble by demonic spirits. And Jesus, in most graciously and mercifully, responded and healed them and cast out these demons. Yet, even though Jesus answered their prayers, their desires, it does not equate that they were followers of Christ. And this was a, the first thing that struck me very deeply, that just because God may have answered, may have responded and even healed you as He did with the crowd, it does not equate that automatically we are followers of Christ. So what does Jesus do? Because He knows, as He knows all men's heart, can people come to Jesus with their own hidden agendas, with a desire of their own to be fulfilled? And the answer is yes. And I hope that today, at least if not, the Lord will speak to your heart and will expose the areas of your life that you have kept hidden or you have neglected. And so how does Jesus now make a distinction, distinction in this chapter as how He draws a line in the sand to differentiate between those who belong to Him and those who do not? And the line that is drawn is suffering. Because a true disciple will willingly suffer for Jesus. But a false disciple will not. Now, I think it's also important for me to qualify what is this suffering that I'm talking about here or what this text is talking about because this suffering is about the result of you choosing to follow Christ or choosing to obey Christ. And then the suffering is the consequence as a result of that path that you take and the choice. Rather, the suffering is not about because of your sins or the wrong choices that you have made, or a terrible lifestyle that you have, that have taken. And I also believe to a certain extent it's not about the diseases or illnesses that you may experience as a natural result of our brokenness and the corruption of our flesh. But I do believe, and I want to also add a point here, that despite these things that we may be the, um, the natural result of our choices, or our sinful choices, God can still use it to sanctify us. But the suffering that is told to us in Luke chapter 6 is the result, the direct result of following after Jesus. And here comes to our first point. 
A disciple of Jesus rejoices when they suffer for him. A disciple of Jesus rejoices when they suffer for him. When was the last time when you suffered for Christ, your reaction was rejoicing? Because Jesus tells us that one day, finally, that day when we are going through suffering, in verse 23, he tells us to rejoice in that day, in that day that you suffer for him. Rejoice and leap for joy. That is the reaction for those who suffer for Christ. Now, because the text is so rich, I can't go into too much depth and detail into the different things that he says, but I want to help you to see this. Purpose, Jesus purposely tells us two categories of people to make a distinction between those who are blessed and those who are in woe. And the two groups of people are marked or labelled or categorised as the poor and the rich. And I want to explain that. I think that's important for us. Now, this group of people called the poor are actually made up of three different um, kinds. What do I mean? The poor does apply to those who are materially destitute and suffering economically. That means they're financially poor. And Jesus is telling them with such hope that just because you are poor, it does not mean that you are excluded from the kingdom of God. In fact, the kingdom of God welcomes you. Being poor does not disqualify you. This was the hope that he was giving to those who were poor. That if they follow Jesus, they will be more blessed than they would ever realize or could imagine. So that's the first group. The second kind of poor is those who are absolutely dependent upon Jesus or upon God for His provision and their daily needs, as if that they are materially poor. So there's a group of materially poor people who choose to follow Jesus. They, want to de- they know they need to depend upon Him, and they depend upon Him and trust Him. But there's also a group of people who may not be materially poor, financially destitute, but because, they be, but because their attitude is like those who are poor, depending upon Jesus absolutely, they are also in this category too. So it doesn't mean that it's just because you are financially rich, you are absolutely excluded from this group. No. It's because of your absolute dependence on Christ, that's why you are like the poor. And the third, and the third group in this poor category are those who choose to follow Jesus and because as a result of following and obeying Christ, they suffer the consequences and become poor. And he elaborates further. This is what poor means. So poor doesn't necessarily mean that you must be financially poor, but it is about you absolutely depending upon God on everything. And you, because you are poor, you seek after God. God to be the ultimate one to satisfy, to provide, and to give all that you need. That is why Jesus says, you who are this group of people, you are blessed. Now, in the Old Testament, to be blessed means to be in God's favour and to be happy, to be filled with joy. And this is often expressed in physical features like being wealthy, uh, having long life, 
um, succeeding in all that you do. And that is not wrong. That, that is how the Old Testament uh, depicts for us about one who is being blessed. But here, Jesus now is saying something different, quite the opposite. He's saying that now, even though circumstantially you might be poor, you might be weeping, you might be hungry, you are blessed. Why? You are even blessed even if relationally people hate you or exclude you. So there are two kinds of circumstances, in so to speak. One whereby circumstantially you are made poor and because of that, you are blessed. Or maybe you are going through a difficult time that you are weeping. Jesus says you are blessed. Or maybe because of the lack of things, you are in hunger. Jesus says you are blessed. But he also adds on another, that even if you are relationally hated and excluded, for Jesus' sake, you are also blessed. Why? The reason is because you chose to suffer for Jesus' sake. You read in verse 22, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Now, many scholars also see that because of your choice in wanting to be with Jesus, you identify with Him and God's truth. You are being hated. You are being excluded. You are being reviled and spurned. And let me tell you that this is absolutely relevant today in our context. That if you uphold God's truth, God's teaching, on even sensitive issues like gender, like marriage, like life, abortion, you will be hated and you will be attacked. But Jesus says that you are blessed on account of Him because you are suffering for Jesus' sake. You know, all of us would naturally feel that suffering is not a good thing. In fact, we do everything that we can to avoid suffering, isn't it? Our whole of human civilization have been on a progress on avoiding suffering as much as we can. From our medical interventions to life, what is convenient to us, everything that we do is to go in the opposite direction of suffering. Because suffering is seen as not good. In the Old Testament, suffering has always been associated as God's condemnation, God's judgment, God's punishment and discipline. But do you know that because of what Jesus has done for us, suffering no longer has that punitive aspect right now, but now because of Christ, suffering is seen as good? When I was studying and I had the opportunity to share the different faith. Uh, to the church itself, uh, different uh, faith, uh, the Asian faith. I did my research and something that really struck me was this, how different faith approach suffering. It is either avoiding it or you try to do something so that one day you can escape this idea of suffering. But Christianity was the only one that embraced suffering. That he doesn't run away from suffering, but rather see suffering 
as an opportunity to glorify God, as an opportunity to be sanctified, to grow and become more like the Jesus Christ, more like Jesus Christ. You see, suffering for Christ is no longer God's judgment, God's condemnation. Suffering for Christ is an affirmation that you belong to Christ. That because you rather follow Jesus, even if it involves suffering and loss, then you would choose a path to avoid suffering and thinking that you would save yourself. And so Jesus tells us that because you follow and obey Him as His disciples, there will come suffering. Not maybe, but will be. Will come suffering. But the wonderful truth is that it will only be temporal. Temporal. Because all the things that he said in the blessed, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall one day be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And one day, God will give us a reward that will far exceed anything that we have suffered or lost because of our faithfulness in Christ. And wonderfully that to encourage these people is that they are not the only ones who will suffer. Others before them have suffered. And because if you are suffering for Jesus, this opportunity that you take to suffer for Christ, for His name's sake, rejoice because your name is written in heaven, that you truly belong to Him. But now here Jesus now gives a contrast about those who are rich, they are in woe. Woe has the either understanding of how it is a warning for you to repent because God's wrath and judgment is coming. That if you do not change, you do not repent, then this will be, you will be punished. Now, the key feature of the poor is that their absolute dependence and satisfaction is on God Himself. It could also include those who may not be materially poor. But compared with this group of woe, woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation, woe to you who are full now for you shall be hungry, woe to you who laugh now for you shall mourn and weep, woe to you when all people speak well of you. You see, this group of people are different because this group called the rich, they do not depend upon God. They depend upon themselves. They do not seek God for their fulfillment and contentment. They seek after their own fulfillment and contentment. So they, instead of pursuing Christ, they pursue riches and wealth, material possessions, and seeking after the praises of men because they want it. They prefer that than the afflictions of Christ. They'd rather to have the praises of men than have the praises of God. They'd rather to be found having riches in men, in these things materially, than to be rich in God. And so... These are the ones who choose not to follow and obey Jesus. And they will do everything that they can to avoid pain, suffering, and loss. They want to experience the blessings now. Now. Now I want it. I want it now. They want to experience joy now, satisfaction, gratification, everything now. They want to laugh. They don't want to cry. But... Just as Jesus tells his disciples that they will suffer only temporary, these group of people will only experience these blessing and so-called bliss temporary. 
for one day they will suffer eternally for their choices and sins against God. So what does this mean for us? It means, are you willing and prepared to suffer for Christ when it comes? Because only those who truly are His disciples will follow. But if not, if you do not, and you are not willing, then you are not a disciple of Jesus. You are not blessed. You are in woe and in greater danger than you realize. And I know it is very hard for us to accept because it's so counter-culture, so counter-intuitive. When we see someone who is rich, someone who has possession, someone who, has, who drives a fancy car, it's something that we want to admire and envy and seek after. I would want to have what he has. Why would I choose a path of, of rejection, of hatred, of, of people ostracizing me, excluding me? Why would I want to take that? I don't want that. But Jesus says that if you follow me and that path leads to that, then that is something that you must take, that you must suffer. That is why I, am, I, be, I deeply believe and very concerned about how there are churches out there in our country that promote this idea called, I'm sure you're familiar, prosperity gospel or health and wealth gospel. And they are selling they are selling an idea, teaching an idea that is not from Christ, that is not from the Word of God. Because they teach that how if you believe in Jesus and if you are saved in Jesus, do you know how you know? God will want to bless you. God will not want you to suffer. In fact, you will be rich, richer. You will be better in life. You will succeed in everything. Your life will be filled with health. Everything that is bad, negative, being poor, being sick, being unhealthy, going through suffering, is all to be rejected because that's not what God wants. And let me tell you that that's a false gospel. And I fear that many of us know people who are sold to this idea that the God of their, not the God of the Bible, but the God of their own life, of their own making. And God will not bless them. And can you imagine the day will come and to the shock and horror of their face that when they tell Jesus, Lord, Lord, did we not do all this in your name? And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you because you chose a path that was not mine. But whereas those who choose to suffer for Christ, those who choose to follow Christ, will ultimately be fulfilled in their lives in the future, and the blessings are reserved for those who choose to suffer for Him. Now, one more point before I move to the next, one more thought before I move to the next point is this. Do you realize that in these two groups of people, suffering exists for both? That suffering cannot be avoided for both groups? The only difference is that one suffers temporary, the other suffers suffers permanently. One suffers for Jesus and the other suffers because of their choices and their sins. 
So the question now for you is, which suffering would you choose? Would you choose to suffer for Christ that will lead to life and greed, reward, and condemn and commendation from God the Father? Or will you choose to avoid suffering now and inevitably you will face the consequences of your choice and be condemned and be punished? The second point that Jesus continues in this is that how a disciple of Jesus suffers because they seek to be like their father and to be like Jesus. You know, you would think that that would be enough for us, but Jesus goes even deeper, even deeper and even more personal. He tells his disciples and those who are listening, But I say to you who hear, addressing everyone, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And then he expands the thought about striking on the cheek, offer the others. Let me just briefly tell you what I believe it to be. The idea here is that a Christian is not to be a welcome mat. Basically, anybody can do whatever you want and you just leave it freely. Because we know in the earlier instance in Luke chapter 4, when the crowds, the people in Nazareth, wanted to throw Jesus off the cliff, they were unable to. They couldn't do anything they wanted to do with Jesus. So I believe for us as Christians and many other different texts will tell us that it's not that we become a welcome mat and people can do whatever we want. But rather, what Jesus is saying that, be harmless. Don't be a threat to others. Whatever people do to you, don't harm them back. Don't be seen as threatening. Do what it takes. Be wise as serpent. Be gentle as doves. That is our posture, as how people hurt us. But I will also add that if I see someone coming to want to take my life, it doesn't mean that I give my life. It means there are some people who think that uh, uh, passivity about Christians, being pacifists, that how we don't defend even ourselves. If someone wants to take our life, we give it. Not true. Or if someone wants to hurt my family, I do nothing about it. I don't think that's what the text means. I think the text is talking about how we ought to be harmless and not threatening towards other people, even if they do things to us. But what I know here is important is that a true disciple of Jesus Christ will either suffer because of the circumstances surrounding them, which we read earlier on in the Beatitudes, or, or rather, sorry, previously we saw that how a true disciple of Jesus Christ will suffer because of the circumstances of their lives or what others will do to them. But now Jesus even goes even deeper. He's commanding his disciples to do something actively. And the actively is to love their enemies. And in doing these things, the result is that they will suffer. And we know how difficult, if not impossible, it is for us to obey what Jesus is commanding. Because every one of us knows someone like that. Knows someone, either you have an enemy that you, that you have in your life, or you know someone who hates you, or you know someone who curses you, or you know someone who abuses you. And Jesus wants you to do the opposite. Because this, something, this is something that we cannot do in our own strength. 
If we could have done it, we have done it a long time ago. But rather, it requires a very deep change, a very deep regeneration and transformation of the inner person. You know, in some ways, the Beatitudes, in some ways, you can kind of survive and hold on the sufferings that are happening around you, both externally, circumstantially, and relationally. But what Jesus is asking you cannot be done superficially, so to speak. It requires a change in you. It requires the power of the Holy Spirit to change you completely to be able to achieve this. So why? Why must we love our enemies? Why must we do good to those who hurt us? Why must we bless those who curse us? Why must we pray for those who abuse us? I can give you two reasons. The first reason is, this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be a fisher of men. You see, you must not forget that as a disciple, we have a mission from Jesus. He has left us this work to continue. And we are to go out into a world that is threatening, that is evil, full of ravenous wolves. And we cannot counter hate with hate, force with another force, but rather we are to go into the world with love. And we are to make others who are enemies to become disciples of Jesus Christ. It can only be done with love. And what better way to show love than to love those who are our enemies? Love those who hurt us. Love those who hate us. And if we can't, then we can't call ourselves disciples. And we are not fulfilling the work that Jesus has given to us. I like this quote from Abraham Lincoln. What is the best way to destroy an enemy? I ask you. I'm sure we have many different ideas and strategies, military strategies, business strategies, whatever it might be, your competition. But this quote from Abraham Lincoln to me speaks a lot. And I think he's hitting the point here. The best way to destroy an enemy is to make him a friend. The best way to destroy an enemy is to make him a friend. And that's exactly what Jesus wants us to do. Not to have enemies, but to have disciples, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And only then will we be able to fulfill that work. The second reason is because it will save us. I know, I know personally too, and you know, when someone has hurt us, when someone has offended us, harmed us, we want the wrong to be made right. We want to tell the person and even others that how we are so hurt. We want our justice. We want our revenge. And we hold on to it, this right of ours, what is owed to us. And you are not wrong. You are not wrong in wanting that justice, wanting that wrong to be made right. But because we are fallen creatures, because we are sinful in nature, when we hold on to these deep pains, deep hurt, when we harbour it, when we feed it, it will slowly turn into hate. 
and then bitterness, and then it will kill you. It will kill you from the inside. You will die from the inside. And every day you are not living, you are dying. And soon, you would think that it will end there, it will not. Soon, you who were once the victim of the hurt and the pain that others have inflicted upon you, you will now be the cause of pain and hurt to those around you. The pain and the hurt and the bitterness does not end with you. It spreads from you to others. And the cycle continues again and again and again. Until, and, even though you are, and even though you are hurting so many people around you, you still are fully convinced that you are the victim. And you are so blind to yourself. And so those people who hold on to hate, to bitterness, to resentment, they are not following Jesus. They are following themselves. They're following what they want. But Jesus is now asking, if you want to follow me, you have to let go of this poison. You have to let go of this poison of hate and bitterness and, rem- and let him into your heart and let, it, and let him fill it with love instead. Jesus is asking you to let go of that right that you believe that you have and let him, let him be the one to give you the justice. Let him be the one to give you the vindication. Let him be the one to seek the revenge for you. But let him do it. Because Jesus tells us that revengeance is mine, says the Lord. One of my favorite shows that I, I, I like to watch is The Count of Monte Cristo. And how there was a particular moving scene that I remember how... Uh, the, the, the protagonist, uh, Edmund Dantes, he was wrongfully imprisoned and he wanted to seek revenge. And in the course of his prison, he met a priest. And the priest, I'm so sorry if you ever watch the show, but I'm going to spoil the plot. But the priest, the priest dies, okay? The priest dies. Okay? <laughs> sorry, okay? It's an old show, but too bad, okay? The priest dies. And before the priest dies, in the scene, he tells him, he tells Edmund, who holds on to this bitterness and hatred and vengeance, he said, this is your final lesson. He says, do not commit the crime for which you now serve the sentence. Because he was innocent, but he was serving the sentence. And I think that points to many of us who hold on to the bitterness, to the hate and the resentment. If you allow it, you will end up committing the crime that you serve, that you are suffering right now. Because he says, God says, vengeance is mine. Let God. But Edmund Dantes replied, I don't believe in God. And then the priest, before he dies, he says this, it doesn't matter. He believes in you. I think why it moves me because this man is so filled with hate and vengeance that he can't see God. But God is real. And God is telling you that, let go, let go. 
because I can do something that you can't, and I can give you life, because the path that you're taking will lead to death itself. And when you do this, when you are able to let go and love your enemy, do good to those who harm you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, you will have proven, demonstrated that you are like Him, that you are like Jesus. Because God is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Verses 35. He's kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. That is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. There comes that you need to suffer and bear about the state that you have, the suffering, but He also wants you to go out to expose yourself because to love is to expose, to love is to be vulnerable. And then to do this, to allow God to do this internal change in you. And he continued to extend that thought that I will just briefly mention in a minute, in, in one minute, how Jesus extends that thought that how we are not to judge, not to condemn, but to forgive and to give. Because when we condemn and judge others, we are saying that we are more superior, more righteous than that person who deserves, that enemy of ours, that one who hurt me, the one who, who made me so upset and angry. We are saying that we are better than them. But as disciples of Jesus, we know we are not. We are equally unworthy, evil and wicked as they are, undeserving of God's grace, forgiveness and love. That is why we needed Jesus to save us. That's why we needed to be forgiven. And because now that we have been forgiven, we can now do something that we once were not able to. You know, I always struggle with this, and I still struggle. When I experience hurt and pain from others, when I'm offended by others, how do I process them? How do I let go? How do I not keep this? Because the, the natural part of me wants to hold on to this. But I realize it's like carrying fire to my bosom. I'm burning myself. I'm hurting myself even deeper. How do I let go? Until one day as I was meditating and I was processing it, and I saw the Lord Jesus Christ, and I thought of Him. Do you know how do you process and let go of this hurt, this pain, this hatred? Do you know how to do that? It's absolutely counterintuitive. The process to, to heal from hurt, to let go from the pain, is to do exactly what Jesus tells you. It is to love. To replace the hate with love. It is to do good. It is to bless and pray and forgive, not judge and condemn. That is the way and the process that we ought to do when people hurt us. Do the opposite. Not hold on to it. And then you have demonstrated that you are a child of your Heavenly Father and you are a true disciple of Jesus Christ. You know what this means? It means that it is just not enough for us to just take suffering and loss. Jesus wants you to be transformed internally and that will lead to suffering. Because there's no telling that by by doing good, by loving your enemy, by praying for them, by doing all these things that they will respond positively. No, they may not. In fact, they may even take more advantage of you. They may even despise you even. But you still do this because you're doing it for Jesus Christ. 
And by doing it, you realize that you have to allow God to internally transform you. Because at the end of the day, to follow Christ, you need to deny yourself. You need to die to self. It means to let go of the hate, the bitterness, and the resentment that you have for someone. I know it is difficult because I had to learn that too. There was someone I, 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 I really, really hated. It's not an enemy in a sense because he was a Christian brother, but I hated this person. And for many years, I prayed that God would do something to this person. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare to share with you what I prayed. But I, yet I've, I always wonder, why is it that even though I'm praying to God, why is it even though I'm doing this, this hate and resentment kept on growing? Until one day, God spoke to my heart. And he wanted me to pray for this person, pray and bless this person. And I remembered how I struggled. I struggled so hard. I struggled, and as I, I tried to pray, I, when I tried to mouth that words, tears came to my eyes. I, I couldn't do it. Tears came to my eyes because I had to let go of all these years of hate and resentment and bitterness. Tears came because I had to die to self. Tears came because I had to deny what was rightfully mine, my vindication, my revenge, my desire for the right, the wrong to be made right. I had to let go. And let me tell you that when I finally was able to pray for this person, I was so thankful. And all of a sudden, maybe it will be different for you, but I felt so light. I didn't feel so burdened. And that was not the end, but that was the beginning of my transformation. Until one day, I was able to reconcile with this brother of mine, which I, now, which I know and I can tell you it would have been impossible in my own strength. Because if I see this brother there, I will go to the other side. I will avoid him as much as I can. But here, God did a work in me that only he can do for me to reconcile with this brother. That now I have no animosity or, or hatred or resentment against him. I can pray for him and see him succeed and be happy for him. Wouldn't you want this? But it can be yours. You just have to let go and let God do that work in your life and experience the power of God's love and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I, I was thinking about this, but I think I might as well do this. I want you to now, I'm going to ask you to pray for one minute, just one minute. I want you, before you pray for one minute, it's not the end of the sermon yet, okay? I just want to pray for one minute to apply this, just in case you all get up. And I want you to think of someone who has hurt you, someone who offended you, someone who has betrayed you. It could be someone very close, a friend, a colleague, 
a family person, someone that you hold as an enemy or the person sees as an enemy, what I want you to do is hold on to that person in your thought. And I want you to pray for that person. Do you realize it's love, do good, bless and pray? And I think praying is the first step that leads to love finally. So I want you to pray. And if you can't, let God take over that pain and, let, and give it to Him. Let's start now. Can you hear God's voice speaking to you? He's asking you to let go. And He's asking you, let Him come into your heart. And He knows it is difficult, if not impossible, for you to pray. But He wants you to do this in His love and in the power of the Holy Spirit. So do so. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that you will help them to take this first step of becoming followers of Christ by surrendering all the bitterness, all the hate, all the anguish into the hands of Christ and to replace it with love and forgiveness and kindness and that you begin this mighty work in their lives. For the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The last point is a quick point. Jesus ends the sermon with about talking about fruit-bearing and building a foundation. So how do you know whether you're bearing the right fruits? How do you know that you're building on the right foundation? If you are able to willingly suffer for Christ, if you are able to let God make that work of transformation in you, to love your enemy, to do good to those who hurt you, to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who abuse you, then that is your fruit. Then you know now with certainty that you are following Christ, that you are in Christ, and you are doing it with joy, not resentment or hatred, but joy. You are so thankful for this opportunity and that you know that you've become more like your Saviour in every way and that you are obeying Him. Then this is your fruit. This is your foundation. Do you know that for you to be saved for you to be forgiven and made right with God, Jesus had to suffer and to die for you. Do you remember that? And how even if you tried to experience all the suffering, you would, it would not have saved you. Because all the suffering of your past before you were saved, 
was the result of your sins and the choices that you made in your life. And how, if you were not saved, there will come a future of great suffering. So everything that you experienced would not save you. But when Jesus has come to die, to suffer and to die for us, He has done something different. He has, if I can use the word, redeemed suffering. And now He bids you to suffer. To suffer not for your sins, but to suffer for Him. And now when you suffer, you no longer suffer alone. You are suffering with Him. That's why Paul talks about that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering. When you suffer for Christ, you are suffering with Him. And when you suffer for Him, it is not for your sins anymore, but it is for righteousness and faithfulness. Suffer for Jesus that others may see the power of the gospel and the love of God in your life. Suffer for Jesus that you may become more like Him and to know that one day God will reward you so greatly for your faithfulness and obedience. Suffer for Jesus if you are a disciple of Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we confess and acknowledge that we struggle with the words of Christ because we know how far away we are from what He wants us to be, demands us to be, expects us to be. And we now know that the reason why we can't, because we've been trying it in our own ways, we've been doing it in our own strength. We have been not dying to self, but living for self. But we want to answer the call of Jesus Christ. We want to follow Him. But we are afraid. We are afraid of how costly it would be. But thank you for your word that tells us it is even costlier not to follow Jesus, not to suffer for Christ, because the suffering for Christ brings life and reward, not death. But the avoiding of suffering for Christ will ultimately bring death and punishment. And I pray, Father, that the Spirit of God will work in our hearts today and continue to begin this work of transformation that we will follow wherever Jesus leads us to, even if it means suffering for Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.